0: Well, good morning. There's four or five of you here this morning. That's a good start. Um, Yeah, as Mark mentioned, we are missionaries with uh, Reach Global, and it really truly is our joy to be able to um, train men, as well as my wife is recently appointed as the Director of Pathways for Women uh, around the world, how to study the Bible, how to preach, how to teach, how to grow, ultimately how to disciple and disciple others. And so, um, if you are not receiving our newsletters, I encourage you to do so, um, see us after the service, we can give you a prayer card, you can sign up on our website, um, we put those out in video format as well as uh, written email, and so check that out to kind of stay in touch with what we're doing, where we're going. Um, it's been a lot of travel this year for myself, as this has been my first full year of traveling, and so one of my major assignments has been to travel with the other trainers, and to just learn from them. Um, many of these guys have been doing this 10, 11, 12 years, and so there's a lot of things that I've been able to learn. And just sitting in the back while one of them is leading a session and going, "Oh yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> I should probably use that." And so, um, yeah, we're uh, getting ready to. I leave uh, next month for Columbia I'm going to be doing the second workshop with a group as well as a pre-launch with another group in another city, and you can certainly be praying for that, um, that the details would come together in the other city. I'm really excited about the potential that's there, but there's a lot of things happening in that city that appear to be making it a little difficult, perhaps, to to pull off what we're hoping to accomplish. But as we just sang, um, God is sovereign and he's in control of all those things. And so it's purely our job to just at least share um, from his word. And that's what we're going to do right now. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 it's kind of funny. Jeremy was teasing me this morning. Um, so we served as missionaries in Columbia, South America for many years, and um, I sent him my notes and told him I was going to be in Ezekiel, and I spelled it incorrectly. I spelled it in Spanish, and so it's still kind of funny how some of that still pops out from time to time. Um, and so Ezekiel is actually spelled with a with a K. I, I usually have sp- been spelling it with a Q, Q-U-I-E-L. And so if you're not sure where Ezekiel is, I encourage you to look at the beginning of your Bible to find what page number it is in your Bible. Um, Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'm going to read verses 22 through 28. And then we're going to look and see what this text, um, God was wanting the people of Israel to understand a specific message and then trying to understand how do we then how do we benefit how are we also beneficiaries but first we need to read it and then we'll pray and we'll get started verse 22 of ezekiel 36 therefore say to the house of israel thus says the lord god it is not for your sake o house of israel that i am about to act but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart, of stone from the, fle- the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning... God, I just ask that you would um, show us as we observe together this text your message to the people of Israel and understand um, all that you have done in Christ to accomplish these things and so much more in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be submissive. We would be submissive to you. We would be submissive to your word that you have guarded and protected for us. Thank you that every time we open it, every time we read it, every time we diligently study it, we literally hear from you. We hear you speak to us. So God, would you, through the Spirit, allow us to understand. Be with us here this morning, that we would leave encouraged, we would leave convicted, we would leave built up, whatever needs to take place in any one of our lives. God, that you would do your work in our midst, because this is your church And you are accomplishing things for your purposes and for your glory in our midst and amongst the nations and amongst the world. And I pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you guys have a middle name? Do you have a middle name? All right. Is there anyone here that doesn't have a middle name? Wow, okay. I'd like to talk with you afterwards and know the story of that. Uh, We were talking even as we were coming in, um, Ron... Alan mentioned that uh, they almost named their son Alan, 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 just kind of, I don't know if that would be a joke or what. Um, I was thinking, Ron, I don't know where Ron went, but I was thinking that would be pretty pretty rough, you know, because you're... you're it's triple A. Like, there's a whole lot of other things going on there. I, I have a middle name. My n- middle name is James. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say that. Uh, I'm, through much of Latin America, I go by my middle names. My middle name because I got tired of introducing myself to people in Spanish of Scott, and they couldn't pronounce it uh, partially because in Spanish it's Escott. And so then they couldn't, and they were like, what, what is is it? And finally I'd say, es como el papel higiénico, it's like the toilet paper. And they're like, oh, Scott toilet paper. (laughs) And I kind of got a little tired of that, so I started just using my middle name. But growing up, hearing your middle name in your house was not usually a good thing, was it? Right? You knew when you heard, when I heard Scott James Carter, it was about to go down right? When I heard my middle name, and it was usually followed by my mom saying something along the lines of, when your father gets home. I also remember growing up too, my dad would often say to me, remember who you are, remember your name. Uh, rep- recognizing that I represented my family, I represented the, the name Carter, um, and ultimately it wasn't probably till years later uh, when I realized that he was also meaning who I am in Christ. I didn't put all that two together. I'm, I'm a little thick-headed, and so I didn't realize all of that. In our text today, we see that God is very concerned about his name. He takes concern for his name. And so we're going to look at this text together, but In your notes, you'll see there that there's really just one big idea that just leaps off the pages of Scripture from this text, and that is that God acts by restoring his sinful people for the sake of his glory among the nations. We know that because God says that he is about to act for the sake of his name. And, and we need to understand just a little bit of context because in one Sunday I can't bring all of the book of Ezekiel up to this point, but it's important to understand that Ezekiel is a prophet and a priest, that he is one of the exiles in Babylon, and in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, God comes to him and, has, and begins to tell Ezekiel things that he is to pass on to the nation of Israel, to those who are in exile there in Babylon as well as to those who are still in Jerusalem. And there are a lot of warnings throughout, warnings for the exiles as well as those who are still left behind in Judah, in Jerusalem. In chapter five, he, he warns and predicts of this come, the coming fall of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is going to fall, and ultimately it's going to be destroyed. And there's a lot of bad news in the book of Ezekiel for God's people. There's a lot of bad news that in chapter 10, uh, Ezekiel talks about the glory of the Lord departing the temple, that God has left his people his presence is no longer there chapter 15 it talks about the fact that Israel is like a useless vine a useless vine within the vineyard it brings a lot of interesting meanings when you you study Jesus saying I am the vine you are the branches identifying himself as the perfect vine what Israel could not be Jesus was chapter 17 talks about the fact that they're like an unfaithful bride I, I, they're, they're, it's as if they're, they're just—and forgive me—but they're just they're sleeping around. They're unfaithful to their husband. That's how they're represented there. Chapter twenty that Israel talks about the fact that Israel is going to continue to rebel. But you begin to get these glimmers of hope when in verse thirty-three it talks about with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath I will be a king over you. And so again, there's a, still a little bit of hope that someday there's this coming king and. and made me, as I'm looking through that, text, that section there in chapter 20, the fact that the people of Israel desired so greatly for a king, and the king disappointed them. Their first king, Saul. You, then you see, okay, well, Saul didn't do good, so the Spirit of God is taken from him, and now David. And okay, David's going to get this right. And then you see David cannot perfectly live righteously either. God says then in chapter 20 that he's going to judge and you will pass under the rod, the rod of his discipline, but I'm going to bring you into the bond of the covenant. And it's the first glimpse you see that something's going to change. Something is going to be different. Chapter 24 of Ezekiel, the the siege of Jerusalem occurs and God tells Ezekiel that I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at the stroke Within a moment's notice, I'm going to take away from you that which you love the most. And God says, I'm going to take your wife as a sign to the people of Israel of the coming destruction, but you're not to mourn. Crazy section, and I'm I'm thankful that uh, that's not the way God seems to work these days. (laughs) Got a message for your people on Sunday, I'm going to kill your wife so you can give it, okay? Okay. Chapter 25 through 32, there's a lot of prophecy against a variety of other nations. Chapter 33, Jerusalem falls. And you see, you just kind of have this sense of heaviness as you read the book of Ezekiel. But then in chapter 34, he mentions something. God says to to Ezekiel, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And there's these little glimmers of hope. You even see one in chapter 11 as well earlier on in the book. These little glimmers of hope. But then you get to chapter 36 and there's a shift that happens after verse 21. And so our text in in Ezekiel 36 verse 22 starts with the word therefore. And so we need to consider some context. So in light of all of the book quickly summarized for you, let's look back at verse 16. And let's see how the people of Israel have been behaving. And if you've been in church for any period of time, you know different stories of the Old Testament of how the people of Israel behaved. I've been going through Genesis and Exodus recently. And it's fascinating to me that a short period of time goes by. The people are, have just been rescued out of Egypt. And they're already they see Pharaoh and the chariots coming for them, and they say the most ridiculous thing ever, it would have been better for us to have died in Egypt. And it's not the first, it's many times they'll say something similar to Moses. They've already forgotten the ten plagues. They've already forgotten the fact that God commanded them to go to their neighbors and take all of their neighbor's stuff. They left like victors with gold and jewelry and clothing. Can you imagine you've been a slave and you knock on your neighbor's door and say, give me stuff. I want the plasma TV. I want the Xbox, uh, the Mercedes, right? You've been a slave and that's the response. They're just like, get out. Just leave. And they've already forgotten it. And it's repeated over and over again through the Old Testament. But look at verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me to Ezekiel, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which with they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. Now, uh, i I'm following, I'm like, yeah, you had that coming. (laughs) You you defiled the name of the Lord. I mean, we won't get into it. Verse 17, those are some strong words. There's a strong word picture going on here. So the result in verse 19 is that God says he scattered among the nations because I judged you. Verse 20, but when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, Lord.'" and yet they had to go out of his land. They profaned his name in the land of promise. God scatters them out, and as they go, they're still profaning his name. They're still acting and living as if he doesn't matter, as if he's not the most important, as if he's not the one to be worshipped above all. You think, how ridiculous, did they not get it? God disciplined them, he kicks them out, he scatters them, and still they they, they won't repent? Still they won't turn and submit? Verse 21, "But, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came and so we see this shift that's now going to take place where we see god's rebellious people being so incredibly sinful and disobedient and unsubmissive and just like us and we see now god says i am about to act god is going to act in this text to restore his sinful people for the sake of his glory among the nations and it's a central theme throughout the entire bible So in verse 22, when God says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. Now, if this is me right here, a question I ask myself is, how bad is it going to get now? Right? Because you didn't get it, I'm going to really give it to you this time. But God says, now I'm about to act for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. You have in your notes two main points that come out. And if I skip something, let me know. I am not typical. I don't typically give fill-in-the-blank kind of things, but this one worked perfect for it. The first one we can see in verses 22 to 23 is that God is acting to restore his sinful people for the sake of his glory among the nations, and it is that God acts for the sake of his glory. God acts for the sake of his glory among the nations. It's so obvious because the text literally calls it out. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. As I was observing this text, I thought a lot about that word act. God is the one who is going to take all of the action in this entire section that we have before us. Over and over again, you can see phrases that we'll look at when we look at our second point of I will, I will, I will, I will. God is doing everything here. As you observe this text, there's not a single command to the nation of Israel here. God is telling them all the things that he is going to do in spite of their rebellious, sinful nature. In spite of their blatant sin and disregard for a holy God. I will act for the sake of my glory, says God. Contrast this to what we saw earlier. They have profaned it I'm going to redeem it. They have defiled my holy name and I am going to vindicate my holiness, he says in verse 23. You can contrast if you put these two passages next to each other back and forth how they've acted this way and God says I will do this. God is all about his glory. If you or I were all about our glory, we would be the most vain, conceited, selfish person in the entire world. Now, most of us, probably really, if we're really honest with ourselves, we are. We often think one of the problems even just you see of um, being a parent, raising children, is how selfish they are. And then it's a reminder of how selfish you are. None of us who are parents had to teach our children the words, no. None of us as parents had to teach our children the word, mine, right? Right? That is innate within us, within our sinful nature, that we are all about us. And it's evident from a very young age that children are sinners. Children are sinners in need of correction. God is all about His glory. His glory is not vain, however. His glory is justified. His glory is to be gloried in God is all about his glory, but he's also all about his glory being made among the nations. A lesson that the people of Israel did not seem to ever quite capture. That God truly cared for the lost nations. See, God chose the people of Israel to be his select people so that they would be a testimony to the world around them of the goodness of God. Of his steadfast love, of his loving kindness, his grace, and his mercy. And in spite of the unfaithfulness of his people over and over and over again, and this is just one text of many, that we can see the nation of Israel being rebellious and God being patient. The people of Israel being just deceitful, wicked, idolatrous, and God still loving them, and God still fulfilling his promises to them for the sake of his name. I think that these words to the people of Israel would have hit very deep because they would have had the idea that we're the chosen people. Like, God God has to fulfill his promises, thoughts, because he made them. And they failed to recognize that God is doing all of this for the sake of his name among the nations. And then we see a second thing, that not only does God act for the sake of his glory among the nations, but God acts to restore his sinful people. In verses 24 through 28, God is going to show how he's going to restore his sinful people the result of their restoration. And God is the one taking all of the action. Verse 23, he says, "I will vindicate the holiness of my name. I am the Lord God." Verse 24, "I will take." Verse 25, "I will sprinkle." Also in verse 25, "I will cleanse. I will give." Verse 26, "I will put in verse 26 And I will give you a new heart. Verse 27, I will put and also cause you to walk. And I will be your God in verse 28. I say all that so that you see that the people of Israel are not doing a single thing. There is nothing they are doing except receiving all that God is going to do for them in spite of them. God acts to restore his sinful people despite their sinfulness and rebellions against him. God acts to restore them. And he does this, as you have even in your notes, in a variety of manners. Look at verse 24. He gathers those who are far from him. I will take you from the nations. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Earlier in the, in the section that we read earlier in verses 16 and following, he said in verse 19, I scattered them among the nations. Verse 17, they had lived in their own land. Verse 18, but because they had defiled the land, they had defiled me and my promises, they had to go out of the land. You see at the end of verse 20. Now God says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back into the land. I'm going to bring you back into the land of promise. I'm going to gather you, I'm going to gather what was scattered, and I'm going to bring it back to myself and to the land. I'm going to gather those who are far from me. Does the same at the end of verse 28. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now, again, I'm surprised at this, because... My logical response as a human to someone who has scorned me, has despised my name, has dishonored me, has just done everything they can possibly do to hurt me, would certainly not be to be, come on back, come on in, make yourself comfortable. But God is going to gather those who are far from him. He moves on in verse 25, Not only does he say in verse 24 that I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, he also says that he's going to cleanse those who are filthy from sin. Verse 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. He emphasizes it two times. He repeats it. I'll sprinkle you clean and I will cleanse you. I will cleanse you from what? From all your filthiness. Remember verse 17? There's children here, so I don't want to get too far into that, but you know. It's not a good word picture. It's not a good word picture of how these people have acted before a holy God. But despite the sinful people, his sinful people, and the rebellion against him, the contrast is he's going to make them clean. They're filthy, they're dirty. They don't deserve it. And God says, I'm going to make you completely clean. The idea of sprinkling water and, and fully cleansing, it's, it's removing all of that filthiness, all of that sinfulness. I know you, it sounds like you're having the baptism coming up. That's what we symbolize when we're baptized. It's one of the ways that we symbolize what we're doing. We're we're demonstrating to others the fact that we've been washed clean from all of our sins because of what Christ has done for us. But here, God says that He's going to sprinkle them clean, He's going to cleanse them. Uh, You you shall be clean. There's no doubt there. That that phrase, you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses. There's no doubt. There's no, I don't know. Can you do it? I'm a little dirty. He doesn't, does he know how bad I am? He gathers, he cleanses. And then in verse 26, you see another. It's almost as if each one of these kind of builds on each other and you're just amazed. I mean, he he gathers, he cleanses, and now he's going to give new life to those who are dead. Look at verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God says, I'm going to take this heart of stone out of you. You need a transplant. Now, this one, for me, resonates pretty hard. Um, I had open heart surgery when I was 10 for a birth defect. So I don't have a transplanted heart. That would make this illustration way better. I get that. But I'm thankful that that wasn't the case, right? So I I know the, the need that I had for open heart surgery in order for me to continue living. God says that his people need a heart transplant. Your heart is wicked and it's hard. Again, I've been reading Genesis and Exodus and and Pharaoh. We all know that story. If you've been in church any period of time, you know that Pharaoh's heart is hard against the Lord. He does not desire to to submit himself and recognize that God is the one true God. And yet, over and over again, even in that section, God says he's going to do it so that Pharaoh and all the people of Israel and other nations will know that I am the Lord. That's why he's letting his people go. That's why he's removing them out of exile and taking them to a better place, to a better land. But here he says that you have a hard heart. Your heart is dead. You're dead. You need a transplant. You need a new heart. And this new heart isn't going to be like the old one. This new one's going to beat, and it's going to beat for me and the things of mine. Now, again, you contrast that to how these people have behaved up to this point in the entire narrative of, narrative of Scripture, and it's an amazing thought that God would do these things, that He gathers them, He cleanses them, He gives new life to those who are dead. And then, verse 27, it just, again, I think it just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting sweeter and sweeter and more amazing. Verse 27, he says that he will place his spirit in his people so that now they can obey. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and, I like that word and because it's going to link two ideas, that he's going to put his spirit within them and the result of that it's going to cause you to walk in my statutes. See, before they couldn't walk in his statutes because they didn't have the spirit within them. Now they're going to be able to walk in the statutes and the commands of the Lord and be careful to obey my rules. See, see, now it's going to be coming from a life, not from death. There's a lot of things that are happening here that God is is beginning to show, even though the people of Israel still aren't going to get it until even after Christ. they're, they're, They're not understanding the fact that they're, Incapable of fulfilling the law of God. But he says that he is going to place his spirit in his people so that they will be able to obey. The heart and the spirit will now give them a desire to obey. The heart and the spirit will now give them the ability as well as the desire to obey. He places his spirit in his people so that they can obey. Again, I love the fact that God is the one doing everything here in this text. There is nothing they are doing. There is nothing that they are responsible for. It is entirely His doing. And then the, the fifth thing in regards to how God is restoring His sinful people is that He's going to restore the broken relationship. Verse 28, You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now when we step back from this text, when we think about the fact that he is restoring this broken relationship, I think it's probably obvious to many of you a lot of similarities for us. As we think on all that Christ has done for us. See, the people of Israel in the Old Testament had, had the fact that they needed to fulfill the law. They had to fulfill it holy and perfectly. And if you've spent time reading your Bible, you realize there's a lot of crazy stuff in the Old Testament that the people of Israel had to do. There was all of these festivals they had to keep. They were continually bringing sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. They couldn't eat certain foods. They had to dress a certain way. And the list went on and on and on and on and on and on and on. But the reality is, even just the fringes of the law, for lack of a better term, the stuff that you think, you know, uh, that they had to do things a, a really super specific way, they couldn't keep the main stuff. Have you ever, like, said something, and it comes out and you're like, whoa, that was really dark and evil. Or have you ever had a thought, and you think, that was not godly at all where did that come from it came from that hard broken sinful heart the people of israel incapable of fulfilling the promises of god they're under this covenant of law that they cannot obey that it frustrates them over and over and over again and here in ezekiel 36 we get one of the first really clear glimpses of a new covenant that is coming. A new covenant. And we know from the New Testament that this new covenant is one of grace. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to finish here in Ephesians chapter 2 because the reality is, I don't think it's very hard for you to see as we read the text in a in Ezekiel 36, the similarities as well as some of the differences between where we find ourselves in this period of history after the cross. See, Jesus came to fulfill all of the law, and he fulfilled it perfectly. He was the perfect Israel. He was the perfect vine. He was the one who was going to gather the sheep who had been scattered. And In Ephesians 2, there's a lot of things that we could look at in Ephesians chapter 2. Matter of fact, actually turn back in chapter 1 real quick. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. Jump down to verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And you read the rest of that section in Ephesians chapter 1 and over and over again it's going to refer to in him, in him, in him. You see, in Christ we have all of the, the spiritual blessings. All of the spiritual blessings beyond just the physical blessings that the nation of Israel was constantly striving for and incapable of fulfilling through the law. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You need to be reminded of the fact that I was dead. There's nothing I did. God is the one who did all of it for me. It says in verse 2, "...in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, verse 4, "...being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together." See, as you think about, as you look even at your notes in that section of all that God has done for us, God has restored us for the sake of his glory. God has redeemed us from amongst the nations for the sake of his glory. He has cleansed us from all of our filthiness if we have placed our faith and trust in him and him alone. If we've repented from our sin, if we recognize that Jesus is the only sacrifice, he is the only way we will have access to the Father. He restores us when we sin. He restores us when we continue to just defile His name. He cleanses us from all of that sin. He places the Holy Spirit within us. I've often thought about the fact that I'm a little quick to judge many of the people in the Old Testament and think, man, what is? they were really... I mean, I'm a little bit thick-headed, but whoo, right? You ever thought that when you're reading some of the stories in the Old Testament? You're like, what is wrong with these people? Now think about your own life, though, for a second. If that were to end up in a book read by other people. And now consider the fact that if you're a child of God, you have the Spirit of God within you, and they didn't. I'm going to talk about making it hard to fulfill the commands of God Imagine trying to do that without the Spirit. And there could be even some of you here today who are trying to do that still in your own flesh. And the reality is that it's the Spirit of God who does the work of God in our lives through God's Word. He gives, has given us new life, new life in Christ Jesus, resurrecting that which was once dead. He's, he's performed a heart transplant because of the fact that I have placed my faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And he's placed his spirit within me and has restored the broken relationship. You see, that's the story of the entire Bible is that God is redeeming people from amongst all of the nations for his glory. And he's restoring that which was broken in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And one day when we will all be in eternity, One day, all of the nations will bow their knee before him. All people will submit themselves to the Son. You can see this idea of restoration all throughout. and I, I really struggled even trying to think of what one text could I even take you to in the New Testament to represent so clearly what is happening in Ezekiel 36 because there are so many. Because we are no longer under the law, we are under grace. So as I finish the section of Ezekiel 36, I ask myself some questions. How am I like the people of Israel? How am I, perhaps, though I have now a heart of flesh, and I now walk in the Spirit, how can my heart still be hard to the things of the Lord? Are there ways in my life that I'm profaning the name of God among the nations, among my neighbors, Am I living my life in such a manner that others can clearly see that I'm striving to walk in godliness and holiness and in the fact that I've truly been cleansed? How am I living my life for the sake of his holy name amongst those who do not know him? Amongst those who are still far from him? In Ephesians, it's interesting that Paul talks about the fact that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were once hostile to God. We were once separated from Christ, alienated, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. See, I was once far from... Christ. And I think that one of the tendencies we have is the more we walk with the Lord, the more we forget that. We start to think we've got it all figured out, we've got it all together, things are going well. And we start to do some of those things through our own strength and not through the Spirit working in us. That's why we need reminders of the fact that it is God who has done all of the action in redeeming and saving us. I've needed that reminder here in the last few days. Trying to remind myself of that even just last night. Of how desperately I'm in need of God. That things can happen in our life that can distract us, can discourage us, can bring us down. We need to be ever mindful of the fact that God is working, whether we're aware of it or not, for the sake of his name amongst the nations. We see just a lot of things continuing to deteriorate within our society. I don't need to go into any details. If you've watched the news lately, you know what I'm talking about. And you wonder how much longer. The book of Revelation talks about the saints who have been martyred for the Lord, crying out under the throne of God, how long before our blood will be avenged? My life doesn't compare to those who have been martyred. But I wonder how much longer, and then I need to remind myself that God is continuing to call the nations to himself. And any sort of temporary suffering or difficulty that I might be going through is often because God is continuing to call the nations to himself. Am I obeying the Father through the Spirit, or am I just going through the motions of Christianity? Have I failed to recognize that the Spirit within me now causes me, now gives me the ability and the want and the desire to obey? And if that desire is not there, then God, what's wrong within me? Would you fix that, please? I've been there the last few days, if I'm going to be really honest with you, of starting to feel like I'm just kind of going through the routine of it. And I don't want that. I I want to be compelled to love the God who has saved me and has redeemed me. And I now need to recognize and remind myself that I have the ability through the Spirit to do that. Does my life reflect a life which is truly, has a deep concern for the nations? I recognize that you've had a missions moment this month, and my hope would be that you as individuals and as a congregation, would be constantly thinking and talking about the lost nations. That you would constantly be focused on your lost neighbors because that's where God's heart is. God's heart is that he would be glorified as the lost nations come to him, as those who are far from him. I told my wife last night, I'm going to be really open with you in just a second. I'm choosing some words wisely. I think one of my frustrations is in we've lived overseas as missionaries so this isn't the first time I don't think to experience just a little bit of return culture shock Any of you've maybe done a missions trip or anything you have maybe experienced a little bit of that if you've lived overseas for a period of time you know exactly what I'm talking about and I keep getting it in like these snippets where I go on this trip and I'm going for a week or two and then I come back and then I leave and then I come back, and then I leave, and then I come back, and you know what? I'm frustrated with the church in America because we're not truly living our lives for the glory of God among the nations. And we're just striving to be comfortable and not considering the cost. The cost of the one who died for our sins on the cross The cost of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. I just returned from a trip with people who face on a regular basis persecution. And it changes your perspective when you come back and I get annoyed when I'm on 35 and the person in front of me is driving too slow. And it changed your perspective on realizing, I just wish we could have a little bit more money to do this. And it changes your perspective on so many things. And so I'm asking you, I struggled as I was thinking about this section of how to help us apply this text. And at the end of the day, I can't solidly answer that for you. But I do know one thing, and that is that, that God restores his sinful people for the sake of his glory among the nations. What part are you playing in that? What part are you playing in global missions? What part are you playing when it comes to actually sharing your faith with people you know who do not know Christ? And so I would challenge you with, with recognizing that we are entering into darker and darker days, I believe. Will we be prepared? Will you as a church be prepared for what lies ahead for us as the church? And so I would just want to challenge us with these words and I just want to encourage all of us to remind ourselves of all that Christ has done and then placing a new heart within us, a heart of flesh, giving us the Spirit, giving us new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. All things have been made new. Are there areas of your life that you have not allowed God to make fully new? You're still guarding, you're still protecting? I've been challenged the last few days to, to recognize that I still have a few areas. Still got a few things. I'm kind of like, nope, nope, don't touch that one, God. Not that. That's too precious to me. God is all about his glory, and so should I be. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your people. I pray for just this body of believers in this community. God, would you remind us often of our deep, ongoing need for you of reminding us often of the fact that we need you every day, every hour. God, we are weak. We are broken before you. We thank you for cleansing us from all unrighteousness, for making us new creatures in Christ Jesus, for placing us into the body of Christ, for giving us your spirit and the ability to obey you. God, would you also give us a desire to see your name be made great through our life, through how we steward the things and the possessions and the, the people in our family. God, everything that has been given to us is so that you would be glorified and so that others would glorify you. Give us that perspective. Give us that heart. Wake us up, please, Heavenly Father. We are your children. We know that you hear our cries and our prayers. And so, God, we ask that you would do all of these things in our lives and that we would be amazed at who you are as we continue to see you work. God, you have brought that which was dead to life. You can certainly give us deep, ongoing passion for you. And I pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.